are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Nathaniel Silly. He is a licensed mental health counselor and life coach based in my hometown of New York City. Hey, Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, first things first, before we get into some of the very interesting work you're doing, we were actually just talking before we aired um, how you have a kind of a unique angle um, on behavioral therapy. I, I wanted to just get some some personal background as to um, what were some of the factors that kind of led you into the field of psychology and, and more specifically around working with anxiety um, in general? Oh, uh, such a great question. It's interesting that you asked me that because I get asked uh, quite often, especially when I start working with new clients. I guess the, the short story is that um, in high school, uh, my friends used to joke that I was the therapist in the group because they could tell me anything and I was really good at keeping secrets and mm. I didn't judge them. And like, man, I feel like I can tell you anything and you never judged me. So I took a psych class in high school and I really, really liked it. And I was always kind of a geek in school and um, I didn't like some of the rigidity of a lot of the sciences. But I thought that psych was a beautiful combination of science and art at the same time, because every client's different and the pain is hidden. And so you have to spend a lot of time developing a good relationship with the person and developing trust and then knowing if they're telling you the truth or not. So every client is like a puzzle where you just take it out of the box and all the pieces are all over the place. And I like to kind of, you know, each session put the puzzle pieces into some type of sequence so that by the end we can kind of get the whole picture. And I just love um, uh, how it's not uh, so black and white. But also when I was thinking about a career and, and what I wanted to do with my life, I figured if I could create a formula for lack of a better word, of what makes people happy and give that to them. Like what better gift could I give someone than that? And so, um, you know, helping people be their happiest self is uh, one of the most rewarding things I think I could do in, with my life here on the planet. So it's kind of like a, a career fulfillment, art meets science and also like a spiritual fulfillment too, feeling like I'm using my existence to make the world a better place as corny as that sounds. No, I think it's great. And also an intellectual fulfillment too. Um, you know, mentioning how you were kind of a, a, a psych geek, you know, as was I, I was a psych major. I think anybody that is kind of a student of, of human psychology can relate to this, um, I guess, innate love for, I'm trying to understand the human mind. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, go ahead. And if I project this last part, um, mm -hmm. 
I think psych is coming around the bend, but I do think that we still have more ways to go to change people's perception of psychology. I think we're kind of looked at like not the real doctors or the real, you know, we're not uh, stitching up lacerated wounds or putting casts on broken bones. You know, we don't wear like the white coat, so to speak. And But I, I really do believe that psychology is just as important and it does work therapy and there's different styles of therapy and we'll get probably more into that later on but i really just had this burning desire to prove to people that they can heal themselves the psychological level and that this really does work right um, because i know i like i hear a lot oh i don't believe in therapy like it's some type of myth or religion or something um and i hear that quite often and um it bugs me. So I want to do something about that. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> career around trying to change people's minds about it. I hear you there. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm completely on board with what you're saying. I mean, I, I studied evolutionary psychology in college mm-hmm. precisely because I saw the brain as just another part of your body, just like, you know, if you heal a wound or, you know, if you, if you hurt your arm or if you hurt your leg or if you hurt you know, any part of your body, well, the, the, the brain, although quite complex and, and quite different physically than the rest of the body, um, deserves equal attention, if not more so, because the brain is kind of the control center of the rest of the body. And so, Absolutely. yeah. And so, I mean, to me, this makes perfect sense. And I think the reason why people have this duality of like, you know, mind and body where the real doctors work on the body is because, as you said, you can't see the brain. You can't see... And even if you could physically see it, you can't see what's wrong with it a lot of the time just by looking at the brain. I mean, now, right. of course, you, you can um, in, in some respects. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think it's it's absolutely um, coming around. I think more people are starting to understand, uh, I guess, the quote unquote realness of this science. And so and I think, in a in a way, uh, it's one of the harder uh wings of healthcare because at first I thought, man, that must be really hard to be a, uh, you know, an ER doctor and someone comes in and they're, you know, with a broken bone or they're cut up or they got into a car accident or something really tragic. But I think psych is actually harder because those uh, ER doctors can, you know, they can do the treatment onto the client right? They can stitch up the wound, they can heal the bone, they can put a cast on it, they can do the surgery. I can't make anybody's uh, mental health better. They have to do that themselves. All that I can do is be the vehicle to teach them how to do that, to to motivate them to to use the tools and to put the tools out there and teach them how to use it. But they actually have to pick it up and heal themselves. I can't actually take their pain away for them. And so, and the pain's invisible. Uh, I have to develop a strong relationship with them to get them to uh, expose the pain. And so that's why I find it actually more difficult. Absolutely, yeah. the 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 patient in a in an ER situation is so uh, is so non consequential to their own healing that they're put under anesthesia. <laughs> because yeah. they just well, have... you do that with 
the press people, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'll just do it from here, and then we'll just wake up, and you're not depressed anymore or anxious. But yeah, um, and I'm, it's it's not to take anything away from 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 a surgeon or you know a, a doctor working on these things. But yeah, I, I think your point is very well taken. That um, this this does require some kind of you know dual buy-in. It requires some kind of effort on the part of the of the client to see that transformative change. Um, so, you know, fast forwarding a little bit to your to your career today, you know, I know that you focus on anxiety on on clients dealing with anxiety. Um, and so, what what kind of prompted you to choose that as your niche? Um, was it a personal experience or maybe a, a secondhand experience? It was a little bit of everything. Um, I used to have generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, for most of my life undiagnosed. I know that now, but back then I, I didn't know that. I and and you know my family did a really good job raising me. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect parent, but I did learn some things that weren't uh the most helpful. Like for example, if you weren't worried about something that meant that you didn't care or that something bad would happen to you as if worry would create a force field around me. Yeah. Uh and it actually was more like a magnet than anything to problems. But, um, and then I had body dysmorphia when I was 21, 22. And that was pretty debilitating. Um, but I, you know, ever since I was a little kid, um, wanted to be a therapist. So that never wavered. But it was actually uh, the advice of a business coach. I realized when I branched out into my private practice, I thought, well, I'm just going to put a profile on psychology today and everybody's just going to come banging on the door and want to work with me. And I realized that that was not a winning strategy. (laughs) And so I had to to ask for help. And um, I worked with a a woman, I'm still working with her now to some degree, really helped me find my way. And I thought I had to be the jack of all trades. You know, I was going to treat PTSD. I was going to treat anxiety. I was going to treat a generalist. Yeah. Yeah. Do everything. But it was the complete opposite. She said, if you're scrolling through uh, a directory listing, for example, and you have anxiety, are you going to want to go to the guy or the gal that treats anxiety, uh, depression, anger problems, trauma, uh, sexual issues, or are you going to go to the guy or the gal that exclusively specializes in that one thing? And she was absolutely right. So I thought, well, uh, who are the clients I typically enjoy working with the most? And it's the, uh, it was the clients that had the anxiety for the most part, although I enjoy working with all different types of people. And, and I do have clients with comorbidities that have more than one uh, mental health problem. And the tricky thing about anxiety is that we're not afraid of the past or the present. Anxiety only exists in the future in terms of the thinking patterns. So it's really difficult to help walk someone off of the ledge about a future event that I can't give them certainty about. Mm. And so I just thought it was a really fun thing to help people not be scared of the future and to believe that they can handle anything. And, um, and then there's how debilitating anxiety is. What do we do when we're anxious? We avoid, right? So people avoid social events. They have, um, avoid taking risks. Uh, and their whole life is kind of just 
sold away to anxiety. It's like they're, you're in like a cage, but it's not built out of, um, you know, iron bars. It's built by irrational belief systems. And when you help somebody recognize that and, and, and come out of it, it's a, it's a really cool thing. Absolutely. They can sleep better. They got, um, you know, better social life. They take more risks with work. They're, they're generally less keyed up. The future isn't so scary. And uh, I don't know. And I, I think people with anxiety, for whatever reason, are pretty fun to work with. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> well, so the question I, can be a little bit not so fun. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> but um, no disrespect, I, I love working with anybody, but the anxious ones are, uh, um, have a special place in my heart because you got to know crazy to treat it. And uh, <laughs> I was uh, the king of anxiety for most of my life. So I think it also gives me uh, an easier time connecting with my clients because I can identify with a lot of their struggles too at one point in time. Right, right. Yeah, you just touched on so many important considerations when it comes to, you know, finding your identity as a therapist or as a coach. And obviously, the, mm -hmm. the first the first decision point you had was niching down or becoming a generalist. And I mean, I have had I've had have I have had guests on the show who are generalists, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, right. But you know, if that's something that you intentionally wanted to to have as a feature of your practice where you don't want to have the same type of client coming in day in, day out, you know, like if you feel that that monotony is going to get to you, then absolutely you can become a generalist. Um, but it, it does seem to be a trend in, in the vast majority of guests that come onto the show that the best work really happens when you find one or two particular areas that you feel uniquely qualified to work with clients in mm. and you just kind of you know funnel all your energy into that area and um it you you all mm. you you mentioned kind of the two reasons why one i mean the client is going to have obviously a preference for somebody who understands them instead of kind of understands everyone right um yeah. and so that's obviously on the client side on the on the therapist side or on the coach's side your mm -hmm. best work is not going to be you know with somebody who you you have no personal experience dealing with any of that so for example if if you've had anxiety your whole life and then you have a client who is coming to you dealing with like sexual addiction i mean that's a it, it's a huge problem in and of itself but if you don't have any experience with that I just I just don't see how an academic understanding alone is going to be as good as a competing therapist or somebody that you might want to compare yourself yeah. to who has both, right? Yeah, it depends because, you know, um, if I have diabetes, my doctor wouldn't need to have it too to be able to treat me. Yes. But right. at the same time, I think it would be um, uh, important to have that understanding. And, uh, and also... Uh, were you seeing that most people you, you've interviewed are generalists or they specialize in something? The vast majority are specialists. Specialists, yeah. 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 I think it's more of a compelling market of marketing message, but um, if you can just speak the client's language and, and speak to their pain points, then just generally about everything doesn't usually compel someone to pick up the phone. But um, 
I, I don't ever get sick of specializing with anxiety because each client is different. And what's unique about anxiety is it's a little bit of a shape shifter. So um, it's not always as obvious as it might seem. So when we're anxious, we typically avoid, right? And so you could have somebody that is very anxious about rejection. So they avoid going on dates. So that's pretty obvious. But then you have a client who's going on dates every single day. And it looks like it's not anxiety because it looks like it's motivating them to do uh, something with it. And, and it looks productive, but they're actually avoiding their anxiety of being alone. Hmm. Yeah. So they're both two different behavioral expressions, but they're both anxiety. It all depends on what you're avoiding. So, um, so it's interesting what people come out. I don't know if I have anxiety about this or that or whatever, because look at how it's motivating me to work, but then all they're doing is work because they're avoiding the, um, the imagined rejection or they're avoiding the uncertainty. And so uh, they're still avoiding, even though it looks like they're not. And that's what's the fun part about it is that everybody is a puzzle and they're, they're their own unique puzzle and just helping them kind of untangle themselves through that with an anxiety specialty in so many cases present themselves differently. That's what's so fun about it, that everybody is, is like, um, you know, it's their own thing. Right? Yeah. Everybody's kind of history coming into the office is completely different. And so while the root cause might be the same, um, at least in name uh, across different clients, um, like you said, the way it presents itself is different. The the environment they're in is always different, which plays a huge role in in how to uh, combat that challenge. So yeah, yeah. That, that's always kind of why I, I saw this whole idea of, you know, I, I don't want to be a specialist because of the monotony of it. It always seemed a bit disingenuous because I don't think if, if you truly are trying to understand your clients, I don't, I don't really see how you could view it as monotonous um, to to specialize, uh, but and, yeah. and even though it seems very unique, the specialization, it's actually not because a lot of times they have comorbidities, right? That they'll have anxiety and depression, or uh, they have anxiety about um, sex, so they can't get an erection, or women uh, they have vaginismus, or they have social anxiety, or they've got phobias, they have panic attacks. So even in the specialization of anxiety, it's like a, a whole host of different ways that manifests itself. Right. Um, or they're, they're uh, you know, anxious and, um, you know, is it anxious and depressed? Those are usually the ones that go together the most. Uh, or it, they can find that they have anxiety and then they have addictions that they, they have as a way to treat the anxiety or insomnia. So there's just like a whole umbrella of different or body dysmorphia another form of anxiety ocd another form of anxiety mm -hmm. so there's just so many places to go even in that niche um and i'm a little bit extreme in the sense where i never do anything a little bit if i love it i go all the way which is a blessing and sometimes a curse <laughs> <laughs> oh my god if i'm gonna be an anxiety specialist i want to know absolutely everything about it 
And um, yeah, that's just my personality. <laughs> I, I, I suffer from I suffer from the same affliction, Nate. Um, <laughs> my, All right, great. So we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, my 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 friend in college would sometimes uh, at, at random moments of the day he would yell out "extreme" because he would <laughs> everything <laughs> I would do would be the the extreme. Um, yeah, and, that's and it, me. Yeah. And yeah, it, it takes a while to kind of learn the value of um, moderation and, and balance. But I think also in our defense, Nate, I, I think sometimes the best work is done when you dive in 100% instead of uh, one foot out the door, as they say. Why not, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to I wanted to transition a little bit into specifically what what techniques you're using with your clients and great i i know yeah i i know that you obviously well on on your website it mentions how you focus on cognitive behavioral therapy and you know we have talked about that um throughout the show and so i wanted to also touch upon a kind of a more central um technique that you use called rational emotive behavior therapy rebt Mm -hmm. and you know, this is the first time we've introduced this uh, th- th- this idea on the show, and so I wanted to allow you to introduce our listeners to REBT, how it differs from CBT, and and why it can be so effective in working with clients with anxiety. Wow! So I'm the only REBTer. I feel uh, special in a way, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. I, I might throw a little shade at CBT. So no offense to any of those. I'm certified in both. And and speaking of you know, uh, going all out. Uh, I, um, when I was getting my supervision hours for, uh, my licensure back in the day, I, we were at a clinic where, um, we were required to do CBT therapy. So based on what we just spoke about, my, I learned everything about CBT. I'm looking at my bookcase right now. I had CBT for couples therapy, CBT for anxiety, <laughs> CBT for PTSD, CBT. I read every, I read 10 books on CBT and I said, I'm going to be the best at this as I possibly can. And um, I realized in, in uh, New York city, there is uh, this place called the Albert Ellis Institute on 32nd in Lexington. And that is the uh, uh, rational emotive behavior therapy Institute. And so a world renowned Institute. And I learned that they did a CBT and RABT certification program. So I said, well, I don't really want to go all the way to, I think it was Philadelphia to do to the Beck Institute to get certified in CBT when I can just go to this place in my backyard Mm -hmm. and get both. And boy, I drank the Kool-Aid. So (laughs) both both certifications, um, I, uh, I ended up liking REBT a lot better. So with my clients, I say both, and I can tell you the difference in a minute. Um, So a little bit about rational emotive behavior therapy. So it was created by a psychologist named Dr. Albert Ellis in the late 1950s. And he is the grandfather of cognitive therapy. So he was originally uh, an analyst, which was the the uh, bee's knees at the time for psychotherapy. And he was like, damn, I don't really think this works all that well. People are here for like 15 years and they're talking about the same thing and don't really get any better and reminiscing, you know, past memories of their mother and this and that. I don't really know if that's the best way um, to treat people. So he did a little bit of soul searching and he read a lot of um, 
literature from um, Socrates and Epictetus. And, um, wow, he went and way back. Yeah. yeah, he went way back, which Socrates is allegedly the first uh, known psychotherapist uh, thousands of years ago. And then he studied a lot of Buddhism. And he said, hmm, there's a lot to be said here, especially with Socrates. People would come from all over Greece to talk to him about their problems. And just by questioning their 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 thinking pattern using logic and reasoning and philosophy, people felt a lot better. So uh, Dr. Ellis is like, there's got to be something to this. So he created something called rational therapy, then it was rational emotive therapy, and then it became rational emotive behavior therapy because we realized, we, as if I was alive then, but <laughs> they, right. I'm one of them, but I wasn't one of them then. But um, they thought, well, behaviorism is really important too. So we're going to incorporate this whole mix. And so uh, Dr. Albert Ellis just wanted to treat as many people as possible and get the word out, kind of like me. And he wanted to write books about it. And then in the 1960s, I believe, Dr. Aaron Beck created CBT. It's a little bit of shade because REBT was first. And mm. there's and allegedly Dr. Beck didn't know about REBT at the time when he created CBT, which I think is disingenuous because how could you be a psychologist in the 1960s and not know about the grandfather of cognitive therapy by digress? I'm loving so, the drama here. Yeah. A lot of drama, but <laughs> um, they're very, very similar. They're almost identical. It's kind of like old wine in new bottles, but, um, you know, it's like we all steal it from somewhere else and then we try to get credit for it. But um, <laughs> so Dr. Aaron Beck just wanted to prove that CBT worked. So he created something called thinking errors and uh, uh, Dr. Ellis and REBT created something called irrational beliefs, which there's four groups of irrational beliefs in REBT and in CBT there is... I'm going to count them right now because I have a sheet. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And they're pretty much kind of like so much overlap in a lot of the thinking errors in CBT. But um, so why CBT is kind of the bee's knees now, and it deserves to be so because we've got a lot of research to support that it works. It's a very powerful evidence-based treatment modality is because Dr. Aaron Beck just wanted to do as much research as possible to show that it works, or Dr. Ellis just wanted to write books about it and treat as many people in it as possible. So, um, so they're very similar. The only slight difference is that if you have a CBT therapist, and you have, I don't know, social anxiety. And let's say you walk into a cafe and everyone turns around and looks at you. You might think, oh my God, everybody hates me because everyone's looking at me. They all think I'm an idiot. Okay. So a CBT therapist would say, well, you know, are you doing some magnification here? Do you feel this to be true or do you know this to be true and to try to help the client look for evidence to support the beliefs or seeing if their initial inference is all that true and that is a very helpful tool but the reason why rebt is even more elegant is because the rebt therapist pretends the client's initial inference is true to get to the deeper underlying beliefs uh, so they'll say and i think it's also better to help 
develop an alliance with the client when you kind of pretend that their initial interpretation of things are true to get to the core belief. So if you go have social anxiety and you go to the cafe and you think everybody's looking at you and you go to an REBT therapist, the REBT therapist will ask, well, what was going through your mind and you're feeling anxious? Oh my God, everybody hates me. And the REBT therapist will say, so what if that was true? Let's say they all did hate you, right? And they might say, oh, you know, uh, that would be awful or um, it would prove that I'm a loser and I can't do anything right. So they deal with the underlying self-downing or labeling of themselves, measuring themselves based on the interpretation of others, rather than stopping a couple steps before, like a CBT therapist would do, challenging the client's inference. Because what if the client goes to the cafe, everybody looks at them and thinks they're an idiot, or so the client thinks, and they're right. And everybody at the cafe does think they're an idiot. <laughs> then they're back at square one, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And how do they cope? So the REBT therapist is like, we're going to help you cope with the worst case scenario that everybody does think you're an idiot. And if it's not true, then great. So no matter what happens, we got you. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's actually beautiful because I think the the goal of a lot of talk therapy is to prepare a client to, even if everything around them is kind of going wrong, it's this idea that, you know, happiness is in the mind and you can choose what to focus on. And right. um, it's it's kind of under your control. It's kind of it's kind of bringing the agency back to the client. Um, but in the example right. you just gave in, in the CBT model, it's almost putting the agency on the outside world, um, right? It's kind of like, well, if the outside world is giving you these signs, then it's almost an implication of like, yeah, you should be feeling this way, um, right? And so yeah. that, that can have the opposite effect. So that, that's a really, really powerful shift in, in and, focus. And- and our EBT, I think, is a lot more existential. Like when we work with, the, I work with a lot of clients that have fear of flying. And the CBT therapists say, well, are you fortune telling, thinking that the plane's going to crash? And, you know, just because you feel that way doesn't mean it's going to actually happen, which is a great tool. But our EBT therapist is going to go a step further. So what if you die on the plane? <laughs> oh, my God. What do you think about that, right? And then we have this big conversation about death right? And dying, and you deal with the core beliefs about the client's own mortality. And we just go there, right? So we think about dying, oh my God, it's awful, it's terrible. Would it really be the worst thing in the world? And then we have these big kind of existential uh, conversations about the client's own perception of death. And then when they're not disproportionately um, awfulizing, as we call it, or overestimating the badness of their own death, then their anxiety starts to go down because they've made peace with their own mortality hmm. rather yeah. than stopping. Cause that's what it's really about. It's a false sense of control. If I don't get on the plane, I'm safe. And the client's tricking themselves into thinking that they're actually more in control of whether they live and die than they actually are. And the REBT right. therapy is going to help them accept that they're not entirely in control of when they live or die and make them and help them to have peace with that which I personally think is a lot more elegant. I agree. I mean, I, I think REBT clearly digs a lot deeper um, into the client's, you know, 
core desires or fears or whatever the case may be. My question disagree with that, but (laughs) what's that? The analysts will disagree with that. Well, I mean, the way you're describing it later, (laughs) (laughs) the the way you're describing it at least sounds like um, RBT really is a lot more, I guess, hardcore in in that sense. My question to you is though, do you feel that because it does dig deeper and the way you formulated it, it's harder for the client to make that mental shift? Because I think, you know, given the example you're, you're, you're saying, okay, well, I guess you're right. 99.9% of, you know, uh, air travel is safe. And so I'm probably being irrational about this. It's probably an easier, you know, kind of chasm to cross than to think, well, you know what, if I do die, I guess it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I, I think that might be harder for a client to swallow. So have you noticed maybe, um, despite maybe it going deeper, it might be harder to to get some buy-in on the part of the client? Well, I think ideally the REBT or CBT therapist would want to do both. So you would want the client to recognize that if they don't have any evidence to support their initial inference, that there's a good chance it's not true. So we incorporate that CBT kind of shout out but then you also want to deal with the underlying issue. And sometimes in therapy, you can get away with just challenging the inference and that's all that the client needs. But working with people that have anxiety, especially a lot of people with very high anxiety, if there's a 1% chance that something bad could happen, they're still going to obsess about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. so I think it's, it's, it's important to go there. And when you help people do the deeper work, they can attribute that same mental shift to a whole host of different triggers that they end up disturbing themselves about emotionally. Right. Because it's not situation dependent. Yeah. Right. And because, and that's the the foundation of CBT and REBT is that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% our reaction to things. So although bad things in life influence our moods, our belief systems that we're holding onto in the moment plays the bigger role of why we're feeling one emotion over the other than what the trigger does. Like I tell my clients, anxiety doesn't get zapped into you from a UFO. It is based on irrational beliefs. Anxiety and depression are uh, thinking disorders um, more than they are um, a chemical imbalance, which I know is controversial, but you can go there if you want to go there. But um, so if people change their perception of what's happening to them. They can change their emotional experience. But remember, there is such a thing as a healthy negative emotion. So if something bad happens to you, the goal isn't to feel good all the time. That is unrealistic and actually disadvantageous. You'd want the client to switch to a healthier negative emotion, one that would be like the wind in their sails rather than a wall in front of them, like the unhealthy negative emotions do. So, so therapy isn't about making people feel good all the time. I know this isn't sexy and I don't put this on my website, but it's really teaching people how to suffer hmm. in a functional way and, um, and to minimize suffering, but we'll never be without it. It's part of the human experience. And we evolved to develop negative emotions for an evolutionary advantage, you know, chameleons, didn't evolve to change colors to their surroundings for the hell of it, right? There was an evolutionary advantage. And so we would have never evolved to develop depression, guilt, anxiety, anger, so on and so forth. 
if there wasn't some type of advantage to negative emotions. So negative emotions are as important as positive emotions, but there is an unhealthy and a healthy negative emotion. And there is also such a thing, believe it or not, as a healthy and unhealthy positive emotion. Oh, absolutely. I can, I can easily see that. Um, yeah, and actually, I, I can see why you don't put that on your website um, because, I, <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I, I was I, tougher. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to so at the at the end of every episode, I I take maybe a couple lines from the guest and I put it under in the in the notable quote section, and I would love to put that, but I can see how maybe that might give a false first impression for somebody. Like, what do you mean this guy just teaches people how to suffer? Um, give me the drugs, right? I don't want that. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll probably probably choose something else but i do think that is a a beautiful way of looking at it i've, I've never heard anybody say that quite like that before so we're a unique breed us reb tears but maybe you could put this in the headline and this is why i tell a lot of people there's a, a difference between feeling better and getting better uh and oftentimes feeling better is the enemy of getting better and, uh, and i think a lot of therapists unfortunately uh, with good intentions, focus mostly on helping the client feel better rather than get better. So let me explain. Um, if I have social anxiety and I get invited to a Halloween party, I'll feel better staying at home. But getting better would be going to the party and confronting my anxiety. Mm -hmm. I went running in the woods uh, with a, you know, a break between clients earlier today. Let's say I trip and fall and skid my knee. Feeling better would be just to neglect it. Getting better would be put alcohol in it to clean out the wound, which is going to burn. It would actually help the heal, the wound heal. Um, when we're depressed, feeling better would be to just stay home and disengage in life in the moment. Getting better would be to get up and engage in an activity, even when we don't feel like we have the energy for it. So it's important to remember that uh, getting better is different than feeling better. And if we just use feeling better as a compass to go through life, we're actually going to be at a significant disadvantage. I know it feels better to <laughs> use drugs or to continue in an addiction than it does to go through withdrawals and to work on sobriety. And so a lot of times I hear in therapy, but that I don't feel good doing that, but that's the point, right? <laughs> if, yeah. if it was, you know, if it was that easy, you would already be doing it. So I think that's worth noting that sometimes, you know, feeling better is the enemy of getting better and, and, and can actually work against progress in therapy. Absolutely. And I, th I think another way of formulating that is the difference between a short-term fix and a long-term solution. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, every example you just gave is pretty much distinguished by that, by that line. You know, it, it's a short-term fix versus something that's actually conducive to mental health, you know, two, three years down the line. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, perfect. So actually, in, in the time we have left, I wanted to ask you a question that I like to ask pretty much most guests that come onto the show. Um, I know that pretty much everybody has an idea as to what the positive side of coaching and therapy is, which is, of course, you know, that transformative change, um, seeing your client uh get better versus feel better. Um, yeah. But the the part of it that is quite different from, from coach to coach or therapist to therapist is the challenging side. So what have you found in your own practice to be the most challenging aspect of your work? And how have you 
worked to overcome that or to contend with that um, through your years as a therapist? Referring them out? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm okay, just now kidding. that's the quote. <laughs> that's the quote. See ya. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess let me ask you this. Uh, gosh, I'm such a therapist right now. In what respect is, what do you mean by challenging? Like, No, it's a good question. Personally yeah. or in terms of the type of client or the mental health system? Um, yeah, so... I'd like to keep that part open because I think it it gives her for a wider breadth of answers. So it could be personal, it could be business, it could be on the client side, um, anything, anything that you feel. I know it keeps it a little wide open, but anything that you can think of like, man, that was really hard. And that took me a while to crack that nut, but I finally did. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm going to say this and I, and I, and I don't mean to any disrespect but to people with this but i find personality disorders to be um, a very unique challenge the belief system tends to be very rigid and inflexible and um sometimes when we um when we challenge the belief uh we get attacked um you know verbally by the client and uh, or they might, uh, you know, do some self-harm gestures. And it, it's just a very, very uh, uh, difficult uh, mental health condition to treat. I don't, uh, I have a, a, a couple now. I have a few with avoidant personality disorder, which is slightly different, more under the anxiety realm. But um, I guess the bad news is that I haven't been able to crack the nut yet. I think it was, I think in terms of a challenge, I had to admit and accept to myself that I can't help everybody. And that with all the studying in, in the world and psych that I, I, I just have some limitations. And I think that some people are better suited um, to help people like that. And it's really not a, a personal thing. It's not about me. I mean, I went into this profession too to help people. And if I'm taking on clients that I don't really have that much success in helping when I know there's other people out there who could do a better job, then that's the ethical thing to do is mm -hmm. sometimes to say no. That, and, and, and as therapists, we have a little bit of a superhero complex that we want to help and save everybody. And sometimes it's hard to admit to ourselves that we can't. Yeah. I think especially in that beginning stage when, you know, you're just starting your career and you're so aware you're it's it's so front of mind, your purpose for wanting to get into this field, which is to help mm -hmm. others. It can be a tempting um, it, it can be a tempting feeling to think, you know, that you are kind of a superhero or you're you are here put on this earth to help as many people as possible in a, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so to remember that it is not about you, as you just said, um, mm -hmm. Uh, I and think one other yeah. challenge. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I need to interrupt you. No, yeah, I I was just kind of I was just kind of echoing a lot of what you're saying because I have heard that several times um, from mm -hmm. therapists. I, I I wish it were more common for therapists to be honest about it instead of thinking that they're you know mm -hmm. jack of all trades. What do you mean I can't? There there are clients. It's hard. I can't help. Yeah, it's 
hard and, we, and it's a difficult balance between, you know, doing it in a way that, that minimizes the chances that the client feels abandoned. But uh, also, I think just one little challenge um, I'll add to that as well is, and this is going to sound crazy and I explain it real quick, but my job isn't to get rid of people's anxiety. So let me explain. I, my job is to help the client develop the tools that they need to be successful in getting rid of their anxiety and to give them the motivation, the encouragement to do it. But I can't make them do it. I can't make people pick up the tools and use them. And so before I used to think if clients weren't getting better, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault. And believe me, I do have a role in this. Um, but some people don't pick up the tools. Some people don't go to therapy consistently. Some people hide their pain still in therapy. And there's so many factors out of my control. And like we talked about at the beginning of, um, of our conversation, like with the ER doctor, right? I can't, I can't go into their brain and just kind of weed out the irrational beliefs for them. Yeah, you wish you could. I wish I could, right? So, so my responsibility is my emotions. Your responsibility is your emotions. And the clients that come to see me's responsibility is their emotions. And I am the vehicle that can help them get rid of a lot of the problematic beliefs that are underpinning the unhelpful, um, uh, negative uh, emotions, but I can't make them do anything. Yeah. And so it's really difficult to accept that, although this is my profession, people come to see me for the help that I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make it drink. And if it doesn't drink, that's not entirely my fault. Yeah. I, I like to add to that. You can just show the horse where the water is. Um, yeah. but, but that's, but that's dragging a, it over into the pool, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's all, that's all you can do. And, um, mm -hmm. I think it's just another example of, of how, how honest you've been throughout, throughout our conversation, which I really appreciate. And for somebody mm -hmm. that's in New York city, take it from somebody else who's in New York city, you show a lot of empathy, um, which New York city is not really known for its empathetic stance but, um, <laughs> yeah. and we definitely could use a lot more of that so oh thank you I appreciate that <laughs> yeah. um, I, I wanted to give you a chance very last thing to give our audience an idea of where we can find you um, your website and if you're on any social media where where they can learn more about the work you're doing uh, sure so thanks for that um, so if anyone wants to learn more information about me and about REBT they can go to my website, www.nathanielsilly.com. C is in cat, I is in ice cream. L is in lily, L is in lily, E is in egg, Y is in yogurt. People spell it S-I-L-L-Y all the time. <laughs> uh, or you can go visit my, um, my uh, professional Instagram account, which is Anxiety Therapy NYC, if you want to know more about it. And um, I regularly do like free anxiety Q&As and go live and just as a, a public service, especially during this pandemic, uh, anything I can do to help people, even if they're not actually my clients, I try to do it. Yeah, see, there's that empathy I was talking about. Um, listeners take note <laughs> because it's <laughs> that, 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 human, that human element should never, um, should, should always be front and center. You know, it should never go away when you're in this line of work. So. If I stop feeling empathy for my clients, that is the first realization that I need to change careers. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and unfortunately, I, I don't think every therapist follows that rule. But 
Um, Me don't. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah, Nathaniel, this has been really great. We went way over time, but that's what happens when you are talking about, you know, I fall on the talker. <laughs> no, but that, that's 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 why you're on the show. It's perfect. I think listeners of the episode are going to get a lot out of it. So, yeah, thank you so much again for for coming on, and I wish you the best of luck. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks okay. for the conversation. All right. You take too. care. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.